Guys, I'm super happy about our next guest. I've been waiting to interview this guy, dreaming of talking to this guy since I was a medical student and maybe even a pre-med. He is the author of the legendary novel, The House of God. Anybody in healthcare who hasn't read this novel is an outlier and needs to go read it right away. It is the catch-22 of healthcare. It was a book that I read in my third year of residency that really validated the torturous experience of medical training, the hierarchical, painful, dehumanizing brutality of it all. And it made me feel like I wasn't alone, that it wasn't me that was crazy, it was the system that's crazy, which is exactly the sort of point of our whole movement. Why are they treating us like we're the ones, quote unquote, burning out in healthcare when we're trying to help our patients, we're trying to help each other? It's the system that's broken. And our guest is Dr. Steven Bergman. So that's his real name, but the name that he goes by is his pen name, Samuel Shem. And that was the name that he wrote The House of God under, and they had trouble finding him because it was a fake name. And when they finally found him, they basically told him, man, you wrote a transformative novel. In this interview, Shem comes on the show to talk about his new book that's coming up. It's called Man's Fourth Best Hospital. It's going to be out November 12th. Uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon. You can go to his website, mansfourthbesthospital.com, where the word fourth is actually a number, four, and then TH. And I'll put it all in the links with ways you can pre-order the book. Now, I don't like to pitch books unless I've read them. And I read a pre-manuscript for this. And I'm telling you, in this one book, it's a sequel to The House of God. So the same characters come back, but he talks about everything that is broken in current health care and how we need to fight to make it better. And it's absolutely must reading for anyone who cares about health 3.0. He actually describes a clinic in the novel that is health 3.0. And I can't wait for you guys to read it. I'm going to be pushing it because I think it's like a handbook for how we can fight back, how we can resist, how we can do better. So Dr. Bergman is a professor of medical humanities at the New York University School of Medicine. He's teaching younglings about how to resist and fiction as resistance. And he actually, I think, teaches a course on the house of God. He joined me via Skype. So I apologize for some audio quality stuff. We don't uh, have a good video of this, so this is gonna be an audio only. If you want to subscribe, leave a review, that helps us a lot. If you wanna become a supporter on Facebook, there are links to do that that help support the show to make this kind of content possible. And without further ado, I will cut right into the interview. All right, guys, enjoy and share. Shem, it's really a, an honor and thrill to be with you today. This is a this is a huge. I'm fangirling all over the place. Yeah, well, I'm a fan of you too. You know, that is, I'm like, I'm if if I could internally project the internal little uh, scream that I'm making right now, uh, it would it would be very loud and really disturbing, but <laughs> but also authentic. So you know, I I 
have obviously, and you hear this every single time that somebody interviews you, okay, House of God is a classic. It's the catch-22 of healthcare. It's the only paperback book that I still possess from my medical school days because I've decided to just kind of debride everything out. But that book that's dog-eared and covered in coffee is still there on my shelf. And I remember I chose consciously the time. And it's so funny, Shem, I'm sure everybody tells you, oh my gosh, this is how I experienced your book. And let me tell you what I, uh, uh, when I read it and what it did for me. So I got to get that out of the way so I can let you talk The because I'm just gushing. It, I read it third year of residency and I waited because people told me if you read it too soon, you'll freak out or you'll be disillusioned or you won't believe it. Read it at the right time. For me, the perfect time was third year because I read it as you intended it, which is fiction as resistance, as a, a satire, as a way to point out. And this is the thing I expected, oh, it's just going to be funny. And I was blown away by the deep statement you were making, which is medicine and its culture are broken. The way that we pursue not just training, but the way we care for our patients is sick fundamentally. It's disconnected. It's heartless. It lacks compassion. And I read all of that at a time when I needed to hear it because it woke me up to say, you know what? I'm going to take a year off after residency. I'm going to pursue some other things. I don't think I, we've talked before, and I don't think I've told you this. I then took a year off and said, I need to recover my humanity. And uh, and then, then the draw and the lure of the beauty of medicine, the connection, the compassion, that component of it drew me back inexorably towards what I knew was my calling, but it took me stepping away to, to come back. So th- welcome to the show, <laughs> Stephen Bergman, AKA Samuel Shem. Yeah, well, you know, um, just to speak to that, I'm as amazed as anybody that 40, almost 41 years later, this book, you know, sells more and means more than, than ever. And, you know, I, I, it, it was a remarkable process because it was a very, uh, I loved medicine, you know, and, and, uh, I really, and we went into the Beth Israel hospital as real idealists, you know, we didn't take the black bags that the uh, pharmaceutical companies offered us when we got there. You know, we said, "Hell no, we're not going to do that kind of stuff." So we were we were real idealists, and it 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 really was the classic thing of an unjust system uh, hitting people who really wanted nothing but to deal with the human heart, really, and learn how to do medicine. I mean, learn how to do medicine, and um, you know, it had the it had the weirdest start, which is after we finished, um, I uh, got the guys together. You know, I had started into my psych residency, but we got together and we drank and we smoked and we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And I just started typing it, you know, typing it down. And I didn't even, I never wanted to write a novel. I had, I had written plays and stuff. I wanted to be a writer more than a doctor actually, but I'd never written a, tried a novel. And um, you know, I just was, I mean, I, I wasn't very interested in it. And, uh, but you know, I, I sort of typed out what we were doing. I had, a, I have a tape of it actually in some of the, wow. uh, some things. And, uh, and we just laughed. We sort of recovered, you know, we were so traumatized that, I mean, it was, I've got a t- one long tape, probably hours that, I, that, that I've listened to a little bit lately that is full of just wit and laughter and all of the major characters, you know, Chuck telling that story about, 
you know, getting the postcards uh, that got him out of Memphis. He was poor in Memphis. You know, want to be a uh, college student at Oberlin, fill out and resign this and sign this card. You know, and then with medical school, you know, same thing. You want to go to Chicago Med, fill out and return this card. You know? So I asked him on the tape, well, what happened with the, the House of God? He said, same thing, man, same exact thing. Got a postcard, fill out, you know. And, um, and so, and, and the, the, you know, I mean, one thing led to another. I was looking for a play agent. I started my psychiatric residency. I was looking for a play agent. And the woman said, oh, yeah, here's the name of somebody in New York. And uh, so I wrote to her there, you know, and, and at the bottom, I said, P.S., I've got a piece of a, of a doctor novel. She wrote back and she said, I'm not, I'm not I don't do fiction, but I don't do plays, but uh, show me what you got. Mm. Doctor so what I had was like you said, you know, it was just it had whiskey stains, coffee stains, tobacco burns, cigarettes. You know, it was ridiculous. We were kind of profligate then. I sent it in. I forgot about it. And I was, it was, I was uh, in my first year of psychiatric training at this big at McLean Hospital, big Harvard psychiatric hospital, you know. And uh, about a week later, I was in the secretary's office and uh, the phone rang. She said, oh, here, it's for you. And it turned out I didn't even recognize her, her name because I'd forgotten about it. And it was this, um, it was this uh, agent and she, and this was going to be the big feedback from the, the world about what would be the house of God. She said, um, she said, and the first words she said to me were, uh, I don't know if you're a madman or a genius, but I really like what you sent me. And I, <laughs> and I actually had the presence of mind to say, quote, I said, well, I can't help you there, but you should know I'm speaking to you from within a big mental institution at this time. <laughs> that was the start. That was the start. But, you know, uh, I don't know what to call you, Z or what? Zubin, Z, whatever you, you know what? Sam Shem can call me anything he likes. You like Z? I like it too. I like Shem, you like Z. Um, but you know, Z, uh, life is so chancy. You know, it's this butterfly's wing that goes one way or the other. And um, I, uh, I, I wanted to go to Mass General Hospital uh, for my internship. And I had done very well in medical school. I got an A in medicine at Mass General. And the word was they'd take you if you got an A in medicine at Mass General. And I put, I put the Beth Israel down, you know, just because I had to stay in Boston to be with Janet. And um, I went to the interview at the Mass General, and it was a great interview. And, you know, I already had a PhD and stuff. I was a shoe-in. I opened up my thing on match day. It says, Beth Israel. I said, what do you mean, Beth Israel? I don't want to go to Beth Israel. I want to go to the Mass General. It's a great hospital, you know. And I never, <sighs> and for years, I never found out why they didn't take me. Finally, one day, I'm walking through Harvard Square, and the guy who was chief resident in the interview, and there were like six docs, doctors interviewing him. I said, uh, 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 whatever his name is, Joe or whatever. I said, Joe, how come you didn't? How come you didn't? I thought that you. How, you I thought that the interview went well. He said, yeah, it was great. It was a terrific interview. And I said, well, why didn't you take me? He said, well, do you remember down at the bottom of uh, the application uh, for Mass General, there was anything else you, should, you want us to know? And I said, no, I don't remember that. He said, well, you put in, I've written two plays that have been produced. And I said, yeah. And he said, 
we knew you weren't going to be a doctor. You wanted to be a writer. We weren't going to waste our time on you. I was probably oh. the only person who got an A in medicine there. They never took, you know. And, yeah. and, and the house of God, the Beth Israel, didn't require an interview. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that's the way life is if i hadn't written that those three words two plays produced i would have gone to mass general and it's such a good hospital i wouldn't have had the material to 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 uh, write the house of god never been a house of god never been a novel i'd be a, i liked what i like to say is you know uh it's like when i happened to get the roads if i hadn't gotten the roads i'd now be a a, a divorced alcoholic neurosurgeon on the faculty at Harvard, you know. Oh, I know many of those. Yeah, right. Yeah. And th- th- I, I have, you know, I am, I am at this age. I am filled with gratitude. I mean, so many things when they could have gone one way or the other, they uh, they went the way that I could really, you know, manage to go on through my life to do what I wanted to do. You know, what's interesting about that's an amazing story. I mean, what's interesting about it is that you created that path by putting down I Produce Two Plays, by going and pursuing this, by in every unconscious and conscious way showing them, hey, no, this is who I am. Do you want this, right? And uh, it's interesting because I've done the same thing. I'm, I'm, fa- I'm fairly, but not, not to the degree of success you've had. I'm fairly oppositional and I'm always consciously or unconsciously telling people who I am, thinking they're just not going to like me and they're going to reject me. And now in my old age, I'm doing it and I'm like, I don't care what you think. At this point, this is who I am. And, and uh, you know, I was going to say, because House of God read as a piece of resistance fiction is that it's Sam, you know it's Samuel Shem standing up and saying this was my experience the world needs to know about this because it should not be this way there's a world that should be in a world that really shouldn't be and unfortunately we're living in the one that shouldn't and i think we can make it what it should be which i thought was the hope particularly at the end of that book yeah yeah um uh, so much to talk about but you know i never realized i was writing a fiction of resistance, which it, it is. And I'm very proud of it. And now I, I talk about that. I write, a, a, I write as a resistor. And, and uh, you know, with Nance Forth is probably um, even a more uh, desperate uh, cause right now, a more important cause. It's sort of the climate, uh, the climate uh, disaster in medicine, you know. And, uh, and it actually affects medicine because your your patients and your, and your practices are are are, uh, are in the hospital. Um, I mean, the climate is in the hospital with all of us, uh, all the different ways. But um, I um, I just I, I just remember that th- all of this is in retrospect, and I've learned it over the years. I just remember a sense during the internship of what I call these, hey, wait a second moments, you know, where you're doing something and you don't really think you should be doing it or you do, you know, or you're walking past a guy in the street and you walk past and say, hey, hey, wait a second, I should have given him a dollar. You didn't look that bad, you know. And in the in the house of God, in the Beth Israel, there were so many that I, it's like I heard, a li- heard I hear voices. <laughs> I, <laughs> I knew it, Shem. I heard a voice in my ear that said, you know, Hey, wait a second. There's so much here that's not just 
somebody's got to write about it, and I guess it's up to me. And that's what I did. And I, and it just, you know, it just kind of came out of my fingertips. You know, it was just kind of joy. It was this, I, I don't think I've ever had as clear a chiseling of an experience. You know what I mean? And then when I found, when I, cr- I created the fat man, there was no create, there was no fat man. You know, I was basically, I was the fat man, you know, yeah, I acted yeah. that but, um, you know, I, you know, the fat, the first law of the house of God is the fat man coming to me and saying, Hey, write me, write the fat man. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that all happened. And, you know, uh, it had to be rewritten seven times. Uh, I didn't know really how to write a novel and, and, um, you know, as it went, when it came out, it was roundly, but it, here's, here's something for, you know, aspiring writers. It had the worst publication anybody, any book ever had. The New York Times was on strike. It never got reviewed there. It never got re- reviewed anywhere. No publicity. I did not do any appearances for two years because I thought I was a purist, you know. I thought real writers don't go out and tout their books. Let it go see what it's doing, you know, go see what it's doing. And I went on writing. And then, and this was incredibly lucky too, one day I got a letter. Uh, your audience may not know what a letter is. You know, it's this thing in paper, you know. It was, <laughs> it was in the old days. This would be, this would be, it came out in 78. So 1980, I got a letter. Two years later, I ne- they couldn't find me. You know, nobody could find me. He's, nobody. And because I took a pen name too. And, um, and one day I got a letter from, and I opened it up and the guy said, I'm on call in a VA hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And if it weren't for your book, I'd kill myself. That's what I said. I said, Ooh, Ooh. I woke up and I said, okay, um, maybe people want to hear what I have to say. And I never, I, and from the first time I ever went out speaking, to yesterday, I always talk about the same thing. It's gotten more crystallized, but it's first to, to, this is the resistance part, first to draw attention to injustice, and uh, second to, to, uh, to write about the healing, uh, the danger of isolation and the healing power of good connection. And what's good connection? It's not hierarchical or racial difference stuff. It's mutual connection. If it ain't mutual, it ain't that good. And, you know, you've read some of the stuff. And that's carried me all the way through. You know, it really has. I, and I, I'm just so lucky. I can't believe it. Oh, there's so much there, Shem. I'm like, I'm in the presence of somebody who I feel, uh, first of all, was an idol of mine, is an idol of mine, but also is on a, <laughs> on a path that I found myself stumbled upon, which is the communalization of pain path. This idea, you, you talk about mutual connection and that, that person in Tulsa telling you, if I hadn't read your book, I would have killed myself. What did the book do? The book provided a connection where he was suffering alone, in isolation apart, and we are meant to suffer together. If we're going to suffer, we need it witnessed, we need it shared, we need it understood, we need it acknowledged to some degree. And I think that's the healing gift also of medicine that has been sucked 
increasingly away in this RVU-based production, HCAPS, MACRA, MIPS, PQRS mill that we currently live in, the acronym SOUP. And you know what? And again, we're going to talk about Man's Fourth Best Hospital, which is your new book, which I read like in a marathon session and was screaming and highlighting pages and going, I'm stealing this for my talk. This is a, this is the distilled thing that I've been saying and, and that we're feeling on the front lines. And what's interesting to me is that you went from, you know, you've had this long career, you've done all these things, you're at NYU, you're a professor, like basically this brilliant career, Rhodes Scholar, all this other stuff. What, and then you wrote, you now you've written Man's Fourth Best Hospital, which is a distillation of all the lost connection, ultimately, all the lost connection that has happened in medicine, that has brought us to a place where 60% of doctors won't recommend this career to their kids, where we have epidemic suicide rates, where, you know, I mean, however bad it was, Shem, when you were training, and that's when my parents trained too in the 70s, and they would tell stories, but it has gotten, the practice has gotten so much worse, as you know, and Beautifully, when I read Man's Fourth, I didn't know what to expect. It, w- it wasn't clear what it was about until I read it, and I was like, "Oh man, this guy has absolutely <laughs> understands everything and has put it all in a book. Every part of it, EHR, uh, the disconnection of the radiologist who now sits in the dark by himself, clicking boxes. This poor radiologist. You know that what there was one chapter in the book, and I won't give away anything, but there's this poor radiologist who has to make these cover your ass." sort of calls because he's he's isolated. The clinicians no longer come to talk to him. He has so much wisdom to bring, so much connection and love of what he does, but he's put in a basement and told, and the residents are told, you don't go down there. He just reads these films <laughs> and you get, just check the dictation. And I was just, I started to tear up because this is what my wife says. She's a radiologist. Like that's why she does it is for these beautiful interactions where she can share wisdom with another human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you like that because, um, uh, you know, I, I'll go back a bit. You know, I uh, was out of medicine for, remind me to get back to the radiologist. I, I might yes. take a detour here, you know. Um, but um, I, uh, I had always wanted to write a sequel to The House of God, but I had I was on the Harvard faculty for a lot of years writing other stuff and and uh, and I, but I was out of medicine I didn't see patients anymore probably for the last twenty five years or something like that uh, I was a psychiatrist and I I specialized in the end with uh, treating people with substance abuse uh, with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous I mean mm-hmm. that's what the play we wrote. The uh, off-Broadway play we wrote, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, which is about the founding of a, it's an amazing thing. And a doctor was one of the two. It had to be a doctor. Shem, quick question about that. What Was it true that psychedelics played a role in the founding of AA with one of the co-founders? I'd heard that. I don't know if it's apocryphal. Uh, not, well, I think unless you call, what was it? Amyl nitrate, I think. Uh, mm. I think he had been, Bill, when he was... Uh, in a hospital in New York, Bill Wilson was treated with what they used in those days to, to d- deal with uh, withdrawal. And I th- th- he had some n- amyl nitrate and maybe that had made him have this vision. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about this is 
Bill Wilson wound up in Akron, Ohio. He was a drunk, sci- a drunk uh, stockbroker who was going to die. And he met Dr. Bob Smith, who was absolutely in the same horrible shape. And Bill said to him when they met, by chance, he s- and had a meeting, he said, um, you know, and my doctor told me that maybe this is a disease. And, and Bob, the doctor, reframes it. He says, a disease? With signs and symptoms, a course and a progression, uh, meaning what? A treatment? And he said, we got to find the treatment. And the treatment that they found was physical, psychological, and spiritual, not religious, Uh, spiritual. Spiritual. The beginning of the holistic movement in 1935 in Akron. Anyway, I I, I digress, but that's that's, that's one of my real treasures that Janet and I wrote. So... I wanted to write The House of God, but I wasn't in medicine. One day, five years ago, I got a call from NYU Medical School. And the guy said to me, hey, you want to be a professor in medicine at NYU Med? I said, what? Why? What do you want me to do? A professor in medical humanities. And I said, yeah. What do you want me to do? And he said, we want you to teach. He said, what do you want me to teach? And I said, uh, and he he said, what, dummy, we want you to teach The House of God. And long story short, I, I needed some money too, and I joined them five years ago. And Z, this is the best big uh, medical organization I've ever been in. I don't play well in big structures, and this is forty-seven thousand people, but it's it's incredible in its connectiveness. Connectiveness. I the first night I was down there, you know, I wanted to. I'm curious. So I explore. I spent a night in Bellevue. Uh, emergency room, you know, 900 bed hospital, never turn a patient away. And at three in the morning, the guy who's emptying all the trash cans in the emergency room, who's a Hispanic worker, he's not surly. He's not resentful. He's being treated well. He's talking to the nurses, you know, everybody's kind of, so I say to myself, why does this percolate all the way down this sense of connection? And and hiring me of all people turns out the top three guys of this 47,000 uh, strong uh, institution were all refugees from the house of God. Oh, wow. Really? My internship class. Yeah. And they, you know, this is the important thing in general, you know, this, that, um, they were abused, like I was in the house of God. They were not going to continue the cycle of abuse. They were going to cut the cycle, interrupt the cycle of ab- abuse, and it works. And I must say a d- disclaimer: Man's Fourth Best Hospital is not based on NYU because it's too good a hospital. But the first day that I went on war- on on ward rounds, I got so lucky. The first day I went on ward rounds with one of these three guys who took me along, um, I saw I saw the, the most incredible miracles that medicine can do now. You know what we could do? We couldn't do this stuff when I was there. You know, it, it, it was give them the Lasix and give them the steroids, right? <laughs> That's right, or both. <laughs> right, or both. <laughs> so, um, so I saw brilliance and a tremendous uh, creation in terms of the science, in terms of what they could do surgically, you know, all that stuff. Everybody knows that. 
But I immediately had this, hey, wait, a big, 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 hey, wait a second moment. I had not been in a hospital. I didn't know what was going on. I wasn't reading that much about it. So I, I, I see what's going on on rounds. And boom, that was it. That was the start of the novel. Because as the narrator says at the beginning, Roy Bash, it's the same narrator, as he says at the beginning, he's looking back now. Uh, he says, I'm called to write this novel at a time when medicine could go one of either two ways, either toward uh, more humane treatment or toward money and screens. Which, and then he says, which is money and money, right? Because it's a cash oh. As you say, you know all this. One of the things I, and so I said, hey, wait a second. Somebody's got to write this novel. I guess it's up to me. And I started writing, you know, and it was, you know, I had to learn more, but it was, it was kind of like the house of God, even though it, it, it was harder because I'm older, but to bring these guys back, to bring the fat man back. I mean, how, how good is that? Dude, dude, dude. Uh, so this is the thing. All right. So I started reading it. The fat man's back. Roy's back. Eat my dust. Eddie's back. Hooper's back. Barry, Chuck. It's absurd the rush of like nostalgia and but 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 now they are back as the kids say in a woke book so this book is woke and by woke what i mean is everything you just said about connection not playing well in large organizations guilty of that but when you see connection filtered down uh and and everybody start to connect then you start to see that even large organizations can be about us, we, instead of I and me. And when you start to see that in service of a higher purpose of, of what you're doing, you know, it's very similar to AA. It's not about, it doesn't even have to be about God. It's about a higher purpose, a connection. And so uh, seeing this book now where these sort of, um, this cast of characters who we knew and loved from House of God are now coming back, and they're tasked with nothing less than bringing humanity back to medicine. And, you know, it, it, it. now the truth is, there's a contrived aspect to that, right? So like these guys get to have a clinic that fat men gets to run, and so you have to create a situation that's a little bit unrealistic, or is it, Shem? Because my whole story was I was plucked from Stanford after making videos as my way of using video as resistance by the the CEO of Zappos, the online shoe company, to try to do something to transform medicine. And he said, build a clinic that you think shows the world what it could look like. And then I read your book and it's the, the plot is the same. And listen, we've not met, we've not talked prior to after you writing the book. And I was like, how does this come out of Sam Shem's mind? And then I read it and I was like, this clinic is turntable health. And one of the most magical things that happened in this clinic was they somehow, I won't give away too much, but let's just say the EHR, the, or should I say the electronic cash register, stops working in this clinic and they have to go to read only so they can get data out of the system to take care of human beings, but they don't have to be data entry clerks or checkout clerks at a supermarket. So they get to spend time with patients, they connect, they go from I and me to us and we, and it's a, and you see it unfold in 
the book in so many ways. They address every single thing that's gone haywire. And I, when I read it, I was like, I. There were times, Shem, honestly, when I wanted to email you. You were in Costa Rica. I couldn't reach you. And in the process of reading it, I, I, there were so many times when I was like, if I could call him right now, he would hear me actually emotional about this particular chapter or deeply connected to this chapter. And and because it tells this story with a hopeful, here's a bright spot, here's what it could look like, here's what we could do, instead of reducing it to money and clicks and screens, which is what it is being reduced to if we don't fight back. Yeah, yeah. Well, I read about, um, I'm sorry, what was the name of your thing in in, in song? We called it turntable health because we believed, yeah, that analog heart of medicine. It's like a vinyl record. It's beautiful and imperfect, and it's got clicks and pops and hums, just like a human. And you can amplify it digitally, but it's an analog thing. So yes, turntable health. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, as I say, I just jumped in, and I. Um, this is a little. This is different from the House of God because I didn't go through this. I went through the house of God. This was a creation, you know, imagination. And, and I just, you know, how you just jump into things. You can't, I got up early. I wrote for four hours. I took a nap and blah, 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 walked and worked in the afternoon. And, um, I just was, was possessed. Well, you know, it all fit together. I mean, how the fat man would be asked because he's such a, He's such a, uh, an accomplished, he's in Silicon Valley now trying to, uh, in, in final trials for a pill that will help Gomers to remember. <laughs> <laughs> and they call him in to, to do this. And um, I created this clinic and I created most of the patients. And uh, it actually, a little different from the House of God, it has a kind of a, a, a plot, it has kind of a story. But... Um, I was just, um, well, what really, really all of this rode on and kept me going and really made me want to do it right was the, the feeling of injustice, as I said, that, um, that when, I, I, when I realized what this is about and then I saw, you know, all the, all the quote, burnout or moral uh, problem in, in like a war stuff when i saw all of this stuff i i said this is this can be even more powerful or in a different way or for a wider audience than the house of god because the the house of god was was mainly for you know us docs it was about the the, the brutality of medical training this one is not just about doctors, it's about doctors now for sure. They're front and center. And every doctor who's read this or talked to me about it, they absolutely identify with it like you do. Because nobody's quite told it like that. Mm -hmm. The thing I've learned, you can have a hundred papers about what's going on in doctors' lives now. But it's not like one novel that hits you in the heart and it hits you in the gut and you never for you know this you never forget what hits you in the gut and the heart and you know why are we talking about house of god it's still current and this book this book let me i'll just finish this little part of it this book is for doctors and patients 
patients don't know why our backs are turned to them and looking into the screen. I asked them. I asked a hundred of them, maybe. You know, it's uh, so they can get my words right and all that stuff, you know. Doctors and patients and other healthcare workers, let's not forget that, especially nurses, especially nurses. I am going to, I'm scheduled to write an op-ed piece for the New York Times, but I said I wanted to do it with this nurse, the two of us working together. Her name is uh, Teresa Brown, who wrote Five Patients, who, who gave a terrific blurb for Man's Fourth. She starts out with, oh my God. <laughs> you, know? <Yeah. laughs> you know, that's a Good blurb. But you know, so working with nurses, I mean, what we have to do. So that might be the first op-ed piece in the New York Times by a doctor and a nurse. You never hear about amazing. that. Amazing. So what we have to do, see, if this is going to have any real effect, is we have to make alliances with those people, with, with patients, with other healthcare workers and nurses, and maybe even hospitals, you know, that's where I, I'm hoping this will lead, that we will, because doctors, we never get together in the history of, of American medicine. No doctors have ever gotten together. Oh man, you know, it's amazing. I'm, I'm just, I'm at a loss because there's so much in what you said that I want to address. It's almost like a three hour podcast if I went through every single thing, because it's, it, it's yeah, exactly. It's like you got in my, <laughs> you got in my head and kind of are, are you know what? It, and we need that. So, so okay, just even from the beginning here. So first of all, doctors and nurses together are dangerously powerful. And we have ignored this alliance. It's a natural alliance. It's been turned into enmity. It's been turned into each of us staring at a screen instead of talking to each other. It's been turned into, why are you calling me at two in the morning? It should be, we are natural allies in this battle to care for patients and take it back from these forces. Now, you mentioned hospitals. Hospitals are not the enemy. They're doing what they're incentivized to do. The incentives are the enemy. The structure is the enemy. The path that our elephant and writer are walking on is the enemy, and we need to reshape that, which you do talk about. And there's a million ways to do that, but the point is it needs to be done. The third thing is, when you told this story, I can tell as frontline physician that there are elements sometimes where oh, you know, is he being a little naive or is there something where maybe it's because he's not in the clinic every day? And then I, I came to a realization, that's exactly what we need. Because if a, if a full-time in the trenches doctor tried to write this book, it would be full of bias, it would be full of conditioning, it would be full of, oh, the EHR is not that bad, we really need it for this and this. And you know what, the, the fee-for-service incentives aren't a terrible thing. And you know, as Upton Sinclair said, you, know, you cannot teach a man new truths if his salary depends on him not understanding them. And I think being, being out of that matrix is very, very key. And it, it's definitely benefited me. Now I'm at a point where I will say anything I believe without fear of losing my job. I don't care about sponsors. I don't care about speaking gigs. If it if it doesn't, you know what? I have to live with myself. I have to hope that, it, that, that there's a world where my kids are actually gonna fit into this system, whether they're receiving care or delivering care, if that's what they choose to do. And, and that's the calling. And I felt that in your book, it's infused with this, this higher sort of purpose to save medicine and we have to do it to 
together. That's the key thing. The us and we is the key thing. And there's like a undercurrent of kind of Buddhist thought, and there's an undercurrent of counterculture, and there's an undercurrent of academics. And the thing is, no one can come at you, Shem, and be like, well, this guy doesn't get it. Dude, you wrote the house of effing God. Like, there is no one on earth who gets it more than Sam Shem. And with that credibility now, you can wield it as a weapon to actually help fight this battle. So that, that's what I wanted to say about the book before I forget, because it was so, um, again, powerful in that sense coming from you. And it really, you researched it. I mean, you know exactly, there were things in there where I was like, how come I should be talking about this? This is something I know to be true. How come I'm not railing about, you know, the isolation of the radiologist? They tell me this. Why is this not on the top of my agenda? Resistance, right? I did a show where I talked about having just read the book, and I was like, how come we're not resisting? How come we're not standing up and speaking together? You said something amazing in your Annals of Internal Medicine article where you said, in hierarchical organizations, oh man, by the way, you and I share this, just... It's not a hatred, it's a burning hatred of large hierarchical organizations and our place in them, just being silenced. And, and, and this idea that in those organizations, if you speak up, you are beaten down. If we speak up, everybody in that org at whatever level, then they have to listen. Then it becomes an existential crisis for the organization. And you said doctors never get together. This is, this is why we're so autonomous and we're conditioned to be cowboys and, and, and we're also conditioned to accept the system as it is and not change it. I mean, medical school was a conditioning experience. Two years of memorized facts passed on from on high by a sage on a stage, 50% of them will be proven untrue. They don't have the courtesy to tell you which 50%. And then the second two years, it's about fealty to authority, kissing the ring of the attending physician, the goal being one day you'll be the ring that's kissed. So this is a perfect crucible for innovative thinking for out of the box for challenging the system. The opposite. We're conditioned to behave, to sit down like elephants in a circus. You put a rope on us and we sit down and shut up. And what your book says is even those people who've been through the crucible, all your characters in House of God, can actually wake up when they see a beautiful thing and go, this is how it should be done. And once you've taken that red pill and seen the matrix for what it is, you cannot go back into the matrix and work there. You have to build something better. And we failed, and it was in Las Vegas, and you know we had to close because uh, uh, our big insurance partner went out of business, and it was in the end about money, about no one is willing to pay to do the right thing. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's just such a such a, a pleasure. You know, we're we're really on the same page. Only only I'm older. Um, You're better. That's. A- <laughs> <laughs> Well, there is such a thing, you know, that I've been around corners that you haven't. I mean, a lot of them you have, but I've, I've been around those corners a little further on. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly where to, where to go with this. There's, there, there's so much. I, maybe um, let, let me just, there's one part of the book that really uh, gave me a little trouble writing. Oh, please! It's not, it's not what you think. The fat man, you know, as as you said, his goal is to put the human back in medicine, and uh, you know, it's not an easy ride. It's a rough ride, of course, in this big uh, institution. 
But in the middle of the book or so, I realized, you know, look, I, I can't just blow hot air. I can't describe things. I've got to have something that guys like you and me and other doctors haven't put together that maybe I can put together. And you know what it is? Mm. I would love if this gets used somehow in the lingo. And that is, you know, the fat man says, I'm giving you a lecture, you know. Um, I think it, I think it actually is on a very cold winter day when Roy walks out of his house to go to go to the hospital. And he says, it was so cold that, uh, my neighbor, the hedge fund guy had his hands in his own pockets. (laughs) 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 And that's a good prelude to what the fat man was going to say. So he, he's a high tech guy, you know, he's He's very rich from high tech from the pill. And he, uh, he does a talk on a blackboard with chalk, you know, yeah. which I love. And what he does, he says, okay. And he writes on the top of the board, you probably remember this, the six rackets of American healthcare, colon, yep. follow the money, and then below, and how to resist it, right? And I felt I had a responsibility. I'm not an economist. I'm not a, you know, but... Uh, I it's it took me about two months to figure out how these six different rackets are all intertwined in this system. They're going all the way from the the medical the electronic medical record to hedge funds. Hedge funds are buying up skin practices. So that did you know that? I did, and they're also they're buying up those, and they're buying up air ambulances, and they're buying up things that people need when they're vulnerable beyond skin. It is sickening. Yeah. I think they can bet either way on the skin. You know? <laughs> if it fails, they make money. If it succeeds, they make money. That's their just Anyway, um, so I, I felt I, it took me a long while to do this. And I, I think it's kind of a roadmap. I really do. I mean, you know, it's a fat man, so it's funny. It's not, it's not you know, it's not, it's said in a way that I, I hope that worked for you. It, it, it really did. And the thing is, and, and this is a point I want to make because pe- some people will read this book either having not read House of God or not understanding that it is satirical to the extent that you don't take it literally. You don't imagine like the fat man standing there and lecturing this. You, you imagine it, but it's not really literally what you're trying to say. He is a hyperbolized, amazing symbol of what is right. And even he struggles in the book, the legendary fat man has struggles and it's it's heartbreaking to see because you go oh my gosh he was the perfect vision of what a doctor should be in in house of god he was the anchor that sort of moral go to and now he even he can be defeated uh or or struggle in this in this cash mill this assembly line where we're commoditized right yeah i mean I, that well, I can't say I decided it. He decided it, and I wrote it. <laughs> but in the, <laughs> in the house of God, um, he was the best. He was what should have been or could have been the best of me. I mean, that's why I wrote him. I wasn't like that. I was just, you know, I mean, I was like Roy, and the fat man was a part that I couldn't be at that at that time. But in the house of God, he was nothing was ever really wrong with him, except that he was fat. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> nothing happened to him, right? Right. He was, he was, he was, and I realized, you know, it's, it's several years later now, and I realized 
you know, he's he's more of a person than I made him at that point. And I and he's older. And so he has flaws. Mm. But they're they're flaws that make him even more of, of, of who he is, really. And of course, Barry, the char- one of the other characters who's really takes a much more, she also takes a much more active part in this book. And she comes in and basically challenges him. I'm not spoiling anything. She kind of challenges him and all the other guys. And actually, there are a lot of women. I, I got to parity in women in this book. There are yes. in a number of women and men who are main characters now in a way. But she challenges him to say, well, for instance, how do you lead? You're a great leader. How do you lead? And he just says, well, I, you know, I show him how to do it and all that stuff. And uh, what she inserts into the conversation, he says, is that this is a still it's a traditional I who has the authority leader in this system. And. What she says is what you were saying, and we both understand, that the way to do it is to find the we. You find all the different we's, and you use the word we. And uh, the, uh, the, the psychological thinking behind that is what Janet and I actually did uh, earlier on when we were working together. And that is... Janet the, is your wife? Yeah. Yes, of course. Uh, he, there's a whole, she put a whole new theory out there. We, we, we created this, that usually the theories of psychological health are uh, measured in a self. All of it in the self. The psychological health and growth is in this self, like doctors. As I was saying before, they don't get together. You know, What she said, the women said, this doesn't talk to us. She said uh, there's a relational model, different from a self model, where... The measure of a person's psychological health and growth is in the quality of their connections, the quality of their relationships, their we's that they construct. And that, plus a Buddhist practice, changed my life. All of a sudden, and I recommend this, I started to almost visualize the we in interactions. Once you get to the we, you use that word, you can then talk about the qualities of the we, like empathy or like joy or like, you know, whatever. That goes way out on the other side. Actually, Shem, that's like a current fascination of mine is this whole thing, this idea of selflessness, self as a construction that can harm us, but we as something that transcends that. And it's interesting, even coming back to like getting very meta, So we're doing this interview over Skype, and initially I killed my video because I wanted to make sure I had enough bandwidth so that our audio was good. But then I asked you early on in the beginning of the interview, so Shem, like, how do you want to do this? Do you want to like see each other while we're talking, even though this is going to be audio only, because I think the video will look weird in the split screen. It's not something my audience likes. And you said, I like to see people when I talk to them. And I said, okay, well, I'm actually very self-conscious and I actually like to pace around when I talk and I kind of pick at my head and I have these little mannerisms like Bill Gates rocking back and forth. And, um, but I said, okay, I'm gonna try this. And being able to see you as I talk to you has created 
this kind of we space where now I feel much more connected. And uh, and so I have to hand it to you. You're onto something there that, I, that I've learned from even in this. Yeah. So um, I don't know where we go. I think, I think the, uh, the I, I'm glad, I'm glad, I, I, I am glad that this book is coming out now because it's, it's, I think it's just right. I think the timing is just right. I think people are going to respond to it. And I'm trying to say to people, I talk to a lot of younger people and I'm trying to say, you know, the reason that I can do this and not, I, I don't run on fear. I run on guilt. You know? <laughs> You're Jewish boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I say to them, you know, um, this, we, I, and my generation were brought up in the 60s. And so we, from the first day of college, we learned that um, if you get together uh, around an issue and you don't quit, uh, you keep at it, um, you can actually bring change bring, you know, the resistance can bring change. And the reason that this shaped me, I didn't, you don't know the whole historical forces that are shaping you when you're going through them. Later, you look back. Later, I look back and I said, Jesus, the reason I resisted in the house of God was I was part of the resistance in the 60s that put the, that we saw something happen. We put the civil rights laws on the books and we ended the Vietnam War. So that's in me. I don't have a real, uh, um, depressive or doubted, doubting part of my actions in medicine. I really don't. I really think if we, we, we have the power to change medicine, we really do. I don't doubt that. And what's going to happen in the next five years, there's going to be some kind of single payer in the, it gets passed probably because of the women and stuff. Um, and then, and I say that to doctors, say, oh, I can't live on Medicare wages, right? And hospitals say, well, I can't afford it. I mean, right. That thing that looks like a danger to you or a threat is an opportunity. It's then when you get together, we get together and we say, okay, yeah, we'll have some kind of national health care uh, thing with, of course, a supplemental uh, private insurance like all the other you know, nations. You can still have private insurance in this system. But you know, people want to buy it. But um, uh, we doctors have to get together and say, at that point, no, we can't work for that. And if you insist, we're not going to go to work. <laughs> and, you know, that's, you know, the answer is, is nurses never lose a strike. <laughs> got a, a union. They're, they're out now. They never lose a strike. We never had a union. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily we have a union, but we have to have a movement that sticks together on a basic thing, which will be, guess what, Z, money. Mm. So, no, but none of us will. Well, I'm not in it yet, in it again, but we can't. It's, it's right to say that we can't live in this current system with this payment. Now, if things change a little bit more, like, you know, NYU has free tuition so that it doesn't cost you anything to go to medical school. You have no debt and whatever. Then maybe, you know, our our living standard can, can go down a little bit. I don't know. 
But what I'm saying is I'm saying to the and and the current generation of students, as you said earlier, they don't have this experience there. I hate to say it, but they they have not very often some are not like very often they have not moved across the line, as you said, mm-hmm. they've crossed the lines because they haven't had that experience. And what I and also you in a few years too, you know, I'm I, I, I can't do all this. I'm handing it off. I'm trying to say to people, we're handing it to you. This is your job now. You've got to I'll help. I'll get out on the front lines and all that stuff. But somehow we have to we have to do something. And I would be the best thing that I would like about this, the same way that the House of God did did have did result in some changes in the brutality of medicine. If this this could be taken up by doctors and patients and nurses and stuff. That sound crazy? <laughs> it's my kind of crazy sham. You're speaking my language. So there's so much there's so much there as every everything you say is just laden with uh, so many things to discuss. And that particular so whether we're talking about universal coverage, which I support, but it has to be in a way that we are paid well to do good for patients, which means we have to modify the care delivery model. We have to focus on prevention. We have to deal with this med school tuition nonsense. We have to incentivize people to go into things like primary care and specialize if that's their calling. We need to do all these things. And who is going to lead it? Right now, we're letting people lead it who have never touched a patient. And I think that's the problem. And you said, you know, nurses have unions, doctors don't have unions. What if we had a virtual union of every healthcare practitioner and activist patient in the country? And I don't know, what if they were like two to 12 million strong and they called themselves the Z-Pack, like my audience, and we're already two million strong. And if you take a book like Man's Fourth Best Hospital and I tell the Z-Pack, listen, you guys, <clears throat> you may not agree with everything in the book, it may not be your style of fiction, but if you read it, you will come away armed with the deepest understanding of what is broken and potentially ways how to fix it. Now, we all know we're looking for a common goal. We I kind of all feel that. We all have different ways to get there. We don't have to have the same way. All healthcare is local. That's fine. But if we have this vision, collectively, we can do something that they learned to do in the 60s in your generation, which is actually affect transformative change at a universal level. And you're absolutely right. I think the this current, especially iGen, the youngest generation born after 97, they've been overparented, overprotected, um, uh, treated like fragile entities. And what right? And what they are is anti-fragile. They get stronger from adversity and resilience within limits. And if they all stood up together with our millennials and our boomers and our Gen Xers, which I am, and we stood up and said, you know what? This is not the healthcare system our country deserved. We've gone to war for less than our own healthcare system has done to us. And those examples are in your book. You know, I mean, it's, there's so, oh my God, Shem, the woman with the, with the gallbladder from Africa, I mean, the stories in this book are heartbreaking because we've all seen them. And it, absolutely. And so I, I just want to say, like, again, people have to read this. They have to share this. They have to become part of a movement. We have to lead it as clinicians, as frontline healthcare people, as administrators, as hospital executives, all together, or it's going to be a disaster. And then the AI will just replace us and we'll all be plugged back into the matrix. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking, um, 
I had the thought the other day, I gave a talk on man's fourth and read for man's fourth uh, a bit. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, we doctors can't form a union. It's against the law. And there is some, I, I remember hearing that before. There is something that does say do, somewhere in the federal code or something that doctors can't strike, can't go on strike. And here's the, I mean, this is what I'm trying to do in my daylight hours. How do we, how does this kind of get done? We don't have to draw, we don't have to join a union. We, I loved what you said. We have a group. <laughs> a we. There's group. We have a we. We doctors. That's a great name. We doctors. Uh -huh. We doctors and other healthcare. We doctors. We're not. We're not. Uh, we're not going on strike. But and I had this idea. Believe it or not, about twenty years ago, I wrote a, an op-ed piece for the Boston Globe called "The Doctor Strike." Twenty oh. years ago, when wow. when when managed care came into. I'll tell you the story quickly. Managed care came into. Massachusetts really hard. I think it was in the 80s. I was in practice. And what they did was Nazi. Really, it was a, Nazi, a Nazi technique where, you know, uh, if you don't give me three, I'll kill 100 or something like that. Mm. Um, they said they bomb, bombarded Massachusetts doctors with, if you don't sign up with us, you're not going to have any patients. So the wow. doctors had a choice join or not, or, or, or organize. And what did they do? They elbowed each other out of the way to get into the managed care systems. And that was the start of it. They never got together. I, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. We have always been, Shem, our worst enemy. I remember back to medical school at UCSF, we were past fail the first two years. Now that creates an interesting we space because it's like, okay, look, all these cream of the crop kids coming in, UCSF, everybody's pretty competitive. They beat all these kids, these pre-meds to get into this very competitive school. This is ingrained in their conditioning. And then you try to unwind it over two years of pass fail, just P equals MD, pass the test, don't stress out. People still stressed, but it was okay. What happened third year? They did an interesting psychological twist, kind of like the Stanford prison experiment or something terrific like that. They, they said, let's add back in the effect of putting grades back during the clinical rotation. So pass, fail, honors. So really, now you have F, C, and A. That's basically what the grades were. So now you see what ends up happening, emerging with people who wanna compete for that ortho residency or that radiology residency or that Durham residency at the top institutions. Suddenly the personality clicks. They're no longer working with their colleagues, helping them learn. They're gunning out, seeing each other's patients, presenting them, oh, well, you know what I read about your patient and just stabbing each other square in the back. And I saw it constantly. Nurses say the same thing, that they eat their young, that these kind of things happen. There's something about the way we select and train and condition our young people that they behave this way. And then it follows us, unsurprisingly, into medicine. And now we cannot work together. And uh, But I'll tell you, though, 
I'm actually hopeful because you've spoken for large audiences. I've spoken for large audiences. When you have like a thousand docs sitting there and you can get them all focused and all feeling the same 60 hertz refresh rate of your mental cycle talking about what medicine could be and seeing those cycles synchronize and everybody feeling the same thing for that moment, like we can do this, you know there's hope. But it takes it takes people like you to write a book like this, to galvanize people and go, you know, we have this common thing that we ought to be working together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, we are brothers in this, or maybe I'm a little father son in this because uh, we, we are from a different generation. And that's nice. That's nice. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it, it really is beautiful. And neither of us have any hair too. You know? <laughs> so that's, that's not so beautiful, but um yeah, it, we're, we're, uh, this is, you know, I, I hope this book is hopeful. I mean, it's, it's sad in a lot of ways. It, it deals with, uh, in some ways, uh, my being older, you know, and, and, uh, it, in, as you know, there's in the first chapters, there's this, there's this, uh, uh, Roy Bash takes a, ter- a, a terrible fall off a mountain in Costa Rica. And, uh, and that, that actually was one of the, I, I knew I wanted to start the book there because that happened to me. I mean, if I had been, this is the, that flicker of the wind. If I had fallen, you know, another six inches, I'd be dead because I, I'd, I'd open my eyes and there was the boulder. You know? mm. And, uh, and that was very important. And so this book is, is from a, uh, a different standpoint, but I've always felt that, in order to get people to listen, I, this was the other thing that came into my mind with the house of God, a profound voice in my head that said, um, this is so bad. This was so bad. The only way people will read it is if it rides on humor, mm. humor. I had never thought of writing humor before, but I realized and, and the first part of the book is very, very funny. And then it gets darker and darker. And that's when people who try to read it during the internship put it down. They don't want yeah. to go on, you know. And you yeah. know what? 40 years later, Z, when I'm teaching this in a 25-person seminar, mostly people, uh, you know, first and second student, year students, some doctors, et cetera. I mean, I, there, there are six sessions. We just read the book and talk about it. Um and um, the uh, they they can't use I don't let them use their uh, computers or phones you know and it's an hour and a half per session this is these are new students new freshmen they're like twenty three years old you can hear a pin drop nobody stirs the book you know whatever is in it it's it's there I guess what I'm trying to say it's there as a yearning for this current generation to try to address this. They're, but they don't know how or what, or they don't want to risk something. I think we're, I'll end on a, on a, on a I, I think I'm getting a little tired. So uh, <laughs> I'll end on a hopeful note, which I think this, I, I'm an optimist, you know, I mean, you can't, you know, uh, and as it says, there's a line in the book where at one point the narrator says, I plead sanity. <laughs> you may remember there's that line in there. Yeah. Uh, but I because of what I grew up with 
And at that time, mind you, Vietnam and the race situation was was really, I mean, you didn't experience it. The cities were in flames. They were being looted. There were huge, you know, Kent State, you know, when the Ohio State National Guard fired on and uh, killed uh, three students out of just, just cold blood because of the Nixon bombing of Cambodia was revealed. I mean, they haven't really lived through this, the, the current generation, for several generations. And I hope that people my age and, and, and all the way down through yours, since you're on the beam too, can be guides to them. Like, it's okay. You know, in a group, you will have power. Nobody is going to pick you off. You know, you don't have, I mean, we, I, I do believe this is the hopeful part. I really do believe that this is at a, this is coming to a very nice crisis in medicine. You know, I think it's coming, you know, it's, it's the Trump impeachment day. So it's coming there too, which is remarkable and wonderful, but we're coming to a very nice crisis in medicine where, you know, it's out of suffering, as we talked about, out of suffering comes understanding and action as long as you don't suffer yourself. You got to ask for help. You suffer with others. And that's that strength. And I believe that to my core. And I'm very optimistic with guys like you and, and other people. We have to help these younger ones. Because one of the things I can't, I, I sort of challenge somebody, or I asked, I didn't challenge, and then, you know, in the seminar at NYU one year, I've uh, been doing it for five years. I said, well, it's all pass-fail in the first two years, right? Because they were skipping this to go to do some of their little tests. You know, they had to take tests along the way. I said, but you never fail, right? I mean, if you know a fair amount. No, no. Well, why are you working so hard? You know, they've had to work so hard to get into medical school. They really keep going working hard, you know, and we have to have a let, you know, we have to be competent or nobody's going to listen to us. And you and I are quite competent. Uh, but I feel this is a, this is, we're edging toward, toward a turning point. And I'm very optimistic. I really am. And, and, you know, anything we can do together, uh, let's do together around the book or whatever. I am absolutely inspired by you, Shem. I mean, it, it is a beautiful thing when the lessons of one generation inform and provide lessons for another generation, sharing a common thread, which is this love of caring for other human beings. And I, I want to leave us with some really inspiring call to action that you put in your annals article, which I, I linked to in the rant that I did, which is the four things you need to do to resist. And I think they were po on point and you nailed some of them just now. One of them is become competent at your stuff to really know your craft. And it doesn't mean killing yourself learning. It doesn't mean killing yourself working. It means learn it so that you can do it in your sleep so that you're a really good doctor or nurse or respiratory therapist or dietitian or janitor or environmental services engineer, whatever it is you do, care about it, have it be your calling, right? I think the second thing um, you said is that, uh, let me see the sec, because you had four and the last one was selflessness. The second one, 
Connection, connection. So in other words, don't isolation is the enemy. That was the second one. And this idea that we, again, we've talked about this, that's a theme of this whole podcast, is us in isolation equals suffering, equals failure, equals being picked off. And when we're together, we go from I and me to us and we, we can actually transform the system knowing that we share a common goal, even if we have different ways of getting there. And the um, the the third one was to speak up. And that's what you're doing with this book. That's what I try to do with my show. That's why everybody in the ZPAC and beyond should read Man's Fourth Best Hospital a thousand percent because it is our way. All we have to do is put the book on the desk of someone we care about and go, this is me speaking up. I feel this way. This is the struggle and the and the hope. And this is what we ought to be talking about. And we can join this social media tribe or we can go to groups. We can meet with each other. We can have power. We can change this before someone changes us for us. And it's a mess. And speaking up together means we have a voice. Speaking up alone in a hierarchical organization means you get beaten down. So so I think I think those four sort of calls to and that, that selflessness, losing the self-centeredness as the last thing to end our podcast, I think. This idea that we can transcend this limited sense of who we are and understand that we're both an autonomous thing and connected deeply to everything around us. And losing that sense of separateness allows us to feel love in the face of suffering and connection, and it allows us to open up and share our own suffering. And that sounds all very spooky and new agey, but everyone knows it's just true. When you search inside, that's what it is. So people, that's you know, what, people have to go from kind of, you know, uh, the vision that's in my mind is that they're kind of hunched over, you know, with this, with this burden on their back. You know what I mean? They're kind of burdened. And we... You, me, and tons of other people are trying to help them find a way toward standing up and, and being free for, for exactly what you said, for caring for patients. That's it. And, and yourself and oneself. And each other as caregivers. Absolutely. That's right. So I'm, I'm optimistic and we'll, we'll, we'll keep on. Shem, I, I want you to make me a promise here in front of all these people. I want you to uh, be my friend <laughs> and work with me on this stuff because I need your help. It's it we're it's a tribe that really is looking for connection and leadership and purpose and the, and and I think you this what you've done with this book is so tremendous. It's an honor to have you here and be able to spread uh, in whatever little way I can what you're doing. Uh, and thank you. I sound like Mr. Roberts. Uh, uh, I'll be your friend if you're my friend. <laughs> and there we've gone from I and me to us and we at the end of the show. All right. Uh, Dr. Touch. Really, absolutely. Dr. Steven Bergman, a.k.a. Sam Shem. Thanks for being on the show. And we out. Peace. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is 
Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.